a lot of the narratives we have about movies, but also the making of movies, come from the assumption that like the normal way of making it is however it's made in Hollywood or however it's made in Paris and London and so on. Um, and so by contrast, when people come, like me who work on, let's say, Egypt, the people who work in Bombay, people who work in Chennai, people who work in, um, in Accra or in Lagos or something, you're often forced to write in a way to, to like show the contrast that place has vis-a-vis -vis like Paris or New York or Hollywood. And in making that contrast, you often come up with something quite similar, such as like, okay, li like lack of resources or like the informality of the film industry. But in some ways, I feel like that the, this way of contrasting often also flattens some of the nuance that exists, right? Welcome to another episode of South-South Globalization, the podcast that brings you stories of people, capital and ideas between communities of the Global South. your host, Temto Pajileye, and with me today is Shihab El-Kashab, working on Egyptian cinema, popular culture, humor, technology, and bureaucracy. Shihab was born in Cairo and raised in Montreal. He completed his doctorate in anthropology at the University of Oxford, and he is now a British Academy postdoctoral fellow at the Faculty of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at Cambridge. Thank you for being here today. Thanks, Temi. Our conversation in this episode will have two parts. In the first, we will try to understand what we mean by Egyptian movie industry and what are the material aspects of making movies in Cairo. In the second part, we will look at the international reach of Egyptian movies within and outside the Arab world. You have also just recently published a book based on your thesis entitled Making Film in Egypt. Is it available to purchase? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's out there in different online resellers, yeah. <laughs> so let's go back in time a few years. In 2013, you landed in Cairo, seeking to locate the Egyptian film industry. I can imagine mm -hmm. how, during the initial attempts to find connections, and perhaps even more so before the journey, you had to ask yourself what was Egyptian about the Egyptian movie industry, whether the question was useful at all, and whether one would reach different answers with looking at the world in front of or behind the camera. Has your understanding of this question and its possible answers changed over the past eight years? Uh, yeah, yeah, a lot. I think especially the latest part of your question, which is uh, in front of and behind the camera, I think that issue is very key to the reason why I went to Egypt to study film industry. Because if you look at most of the things that were published on Egyptian cinema in English or French or Arabic, a lot of it is, understandably so, about the movies themselves, right? Like what the movies show, the the stars, the plots, and so on and so forth. And part of my interest in going to study the film industry is really to know about behind the scenes, which is very, very understudied in general, but also in the Egyptian case specifically. And so relating to the question of what's Egyptian about Egyptian cinema, actually, this is one of the kind of key questions um, that people in the literature on movies themselves ask, right? They're like, what's distinctive about the the plots and the stars and the the narratives and the genres that are portrayed on uh, on screen in Egypt and you know you come up with all sorts of different answers because of the specific history of Egypt as a country because of the history of Egypt as a kind of a major center of cultural production in the Arab world, which we'll get into in the second part, because of, you know, the, the particular kind of artistic genres that evolved over the course of the 20th century, there is something kind of distinctive about 
Egyptian uh, movies as opposed to other types of movies. But from my end, what I was interested in looking at is how people actually make the movies. And in many respects, that aspect of the process is not necessarily specifically Egyptian. I often uh, got questions about like, okay, so what's specifically Egyptian about the way of making movies in Egypt? And I think my thinking about this evolved a lot over the years. At the beginning, I was kind of, uh, I felt it was like a a form of over-contextualization. Like you have to find something that's somehow specifically Egyptian about, you know, how people use the camera or how people go about organizing their shooting there and so on. Um, and in many respects, there there isn't really. I think what's specifically Egyptian about the way of making movies by now, you know, after eight years of thinking about this, is really things that aren't specific to the film industry as such, but things that are specific to Egypt as a country. So in terms of like the national policies that Egypt has, this particular historical trajectories, the institutions that exist in Egypt make a difference in terms of how movies are made. But in terms of how filmmakers themselves think about the craft of making movies, in many ways, it's not, you know, particularly specific to Egypt. And in many ways, what I was interested in showing was how, in some sense, there are connections between the ways of making movies, whether it's in Egypt, in, in India, which like I cite a lot of scholarship that's about India. In Western Africa, there's a lot of scholarship about making um, video movies in Western Africa. And that's very much part of the type of engagement that I was interested in having, right? And not, not just being like Egypt is this kind of uniquely positioned place to make movies in the world, uh, but more so like how is Egypt related to all these other contexts where people make movies and how can we think about the making of movies using those kinds of um, connections? One of the papers I'm currently working on is about trying to think about how, because of the fact that film studies in general is kind of written from a Western-centric uh, perspective, or specifically North American and Western European, a lot of the narratives we have about movies, but also the making of movies, come from the assumption that like the normal way of making it is however it's made in Hollywood or however it's made in Paris and London and so on. Um, and so by contrast, when people come, like me who work on, let's say, Egypt, but people who work in Bombay, people who work in Chennai, people who work in... Um, in Accra or in Lagos or something, you're often forced to write in a way to, to like show the contrast that place has vis-a-vis -vis like Paris or New York or Hollywood. And in making that contrast, you often come up with something quite similar, such as like, okay, li like lack of resources or like the informality of the film industry or the fact that a lot of these industries that are outside of, uh, you know, Western Europe, and North America are very oral. Like a lot of things happen by people just like hashing things through orally and then just making the movies happen as they go. They often don't write a script, a set script, and then execute it. And, and this is something that's common across many contexts. But in some ways, I feel like that the, this way of contrasting often also flattens some of the nuance that exists, right? So one of the things that I try to do in my work is, is to try and think, for example, of not necessarily of binaries between like, you know, a kind of formal or in, informal industry or like a written or an oral industry, but think about how is it that in the Egyptian context, for example, as opposed to in India or in Western Africa or somewhere even in, in Paris or London, um, how is it that people use writing? So is, is writing a kind of central aspect of the process? Which aspects of the process are written, which aren't? And to kind of focus on more like how the processes actually work in parallel in different places and not necessarily characterize places by particular types of processes, if that makes sense. Yes, that's true. This And this brings me to the second issue I wanted to explore. We, we do tend to think a lot in terms of those binaries. So we might look at the same processes happening in the West and the Global South and call the former innovations and the later copy mechanisms. You also talked a lot about how innovation and in general the value of labor is recognized or erased within the Egyptian movie industry. 
Can you tell us a little bit about which names are on top of the filmmaking ladder today in Egypt or have been in the recent past? And a little bit about their work. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so the one thing um, in Egypt, like in other industries, uh, film industries, there's you know quite a hierarchical sense of the division of labor. And so the people who are on top of the industry, conceptually, let's say, are usually the producers, the directors, and then some of the kind of key crew members, the cinematographers, the art directors, and so on, and, and the stars, obviously, uh, who are very important kind of currency in terms of how the film market works. So in terms of major, let's say, directors and stars, I think right now we're at the cusp of a kind of generational shift in some ways, because a lot of the people who are famous today were already famous in the early 2000s. So that's like 20 years ago, but now they're a bit older. So whether you're talking about stars like uh, Monazaki, uh, Hanedi, uh, there's a, a specific generation of stars that was kind of very popular in the early 2000s. And now they're still acting and making movies as like major stars. Um, and directors, likewise, there's a guy called uh, Sharif Arafa, for example, who um, started making movies in the 90s, but still, you know, the biggest budget movies, you know, he's one of the people who makes them. There's another guy called Marwan Hamid, who's a kind of big blockbuster type uh, Egyptian filmmaker. And these are really the household names in the industry. They're people who make um, movies that are big budget and that are really for domestic consumption. But actually, they're not the household names in the festival circuit. So a, a lot of the uh, Egyptian filmmakers that you will see in like European film festivals or like worldwide film festivals, really, like, you know, they go to, you know, South America, even they go to East Asia and so on. Uh, they're actually not like super well known in the local industry and they tend to be quite marginal to it. So people like... Uh, someone I worked with, for example, Ahmad Fawzi Saleh, uh, people like Hala Lotfi, people like uh, Tamir Saeed, who made this movie called The Last Days of the City, which was like really popular in Berlin um, a few years back when it came out, and in many other places. I mean, it's a movie that I would recommend. <laughs> These directors that are kind of popular in the kind of other circuits outside of Egypt, but within Egypt, they're not necessarily super well distributed or well known and so on. And in terms of other major names in, in other fields, again, there's like, you know, there's a lot of really older people. Uh, let's say the, the most famous art director until recently is a guy called Onsi Abu Saif, who started working in the 70s, and, and he's still like a super, super well-known guy. But like, there's a younger generation of people like uh, Ali Hussein and like uh, Asim Ali and, and others like him who are like maybe in their 30s, 40s. They're not super well-known, but you know, there's as in like they're not super well-known outside the industry, but within the industry, they're kind of uh, big names. And likewise for cinematographers and others. So yeah, I think in coming years, there will be more names and, and different generation of people coming out because, like, as I said, I think a lot of the dominant names in the industry are quite old by now. You already mentioned how one of the groups you followed uh, defects from the mainstream. And in general, how do the filmmakers and, and the movies that you collaborated with relate to or contrast with uh, the mainstream? I followed two main movies really during my uh, field work. So one was called Decor by a filmmaker called Ahmad Abdullah. Um, and Ahmad Abdullah is 
his first three movies were more or less independent and and the latest one actually but the one that i followed was actually in a big company called new century it was like a kind of fairly big company makes like five six movies a year has like a, a important distribution arm owns a lot of cinemas and so on and so you know that movie that i followed the production crew was very much a kind of you know mainstream commercial crew that made a lot of the big budget movies that you know you would hear about like one of them for example which i also would recommend watching is called uh, Clash or Ishtebek, um, it, and it made the Cannes Film Festival a few years ago. So in Egypt, people talk about it in terms of like commercial versus independent industry. And I, I don't think the binary is very useful because there's just different degrees of relation to core sources of capital and resources, basically, right? So there's some filmmakers like Ahmad Abdullah, right, who made like four movies with like low budgets and trying to cobble resources here and there. But then he also made that movie with like that big company, right? And likewise with Ahmad Fawzi Saleh, who made that other movie that I referred to called Poisonous Roses that I also followed. Ahmad Fawzi Saleh is like somewhat marginal to the industry, but that movie has one of the biggest movie stars in it called uh, Mahmoud Hameda, who also partly produced the movie, right? So it's just, you know, it, it, you can't really talk in terms of like, yeah, that there's like people who are marginal, people who aren't. There's just different degrees of relation to the core of, of the industry, as it were. All right. So now let's zoom into a single production. You use the term reification to describe the progressive erasure of labor of the workers at the bottom of the artistic ladder in favor of the labor of those at the top. How did this play out in the crews that you followed? This is so. This is something that I hadn't really thought about before I went on a on a film set because, and I I feel like a lot of people who write about movies often don't think about this also uh, because when you're watching a movie you're thinking like okay this movie there's like the director of the movie there's the guy who like shot it and then there's the the screenwriter or something but when you show up on a film set there's like sixty people right and they're all doing different things and they all have like a job and they all know more or less different aspects of the filmmaking craft and they actually all have a substantial contribution to make, which is why they're hired on a film crew, right? Like, I think part of the reason why the film crew is so big is, you know, there, there's reasons that aren't purely related to, like, the fabric of the film itself. But in part, it's also about, like, having people who are specialized in different bits of how to make a movie. And th the thing is, after the movie is is made, people don't really think about these people at all, right? Like, you'd think, oh, okay, it's the director made that decision, the the cinematographer made that decision and so on. Um, and part of what I wanted to, to do in my writing based on that experience of, like, you know, seeing all the different aspects uh, uh, that go into making a film um, from preparations and all the work that the production workers do and the decor, the like set workers do and the costume workers do, uh, all the way to the shooting, all the way to post-production where you have, again, like, you know, there's an editor for the sound, an editor for the, for the image, there's the graphics guys, there's, you know, all sorts of uh, different people. What I wanted to do is highlight the role that um, these people that you don't usually hear about in the making of films play. And also to try and explain why it is that you don't hear about them, right? This, this is why I kind of came up with this idea of reification. I didn't really come up with it. I'm, I'm kind of appropriating a term that existed and developing it in my particular direction. But the, the basic idea that I had was, I mean, and my basic experience of it was that like at specific nodes of the film project, there's a lot of labor that like if you're there, you see and you're, you're just like, wow, there's a lot going into it. But there's a node at which all this labor gets congealed in uh, particular objects. Uh, so, for example, one, one of the like really striking things for me was um, at the end of the shooting day, every shooting day, um, especially now with digital. So I'm describing it the digital way. Um, they uh, after they finish the shooting day, all the the data that's on the SD card on the camera basically they transfer onto a hard drive. Then that hard drive goes to the uh, 
production company where they will edit the movie, right? So every day, every shooting day, that's like at the end of the shooting day, there's a hard drive and it contains basically all of the stuff that I've seen during the day, you know, from the lighting crew kind of trying to put stuff from the generator guys trying to make the electricity work from the the set workers who are trying to build the sets and so on. All of this, all of this gets congealed in the hard drive. And as soon as it enters the editor's office, the editor could be like, oh, I don't like that scene, remove this, right? So like there's all this labor that just kind of goes out the window, but it's understood as being just part of the process, right? I mean, this is how movies are made, is that in some ways you you have to go through that process of erasing labor at different moments in the process in order for you to make the product that you then see in the cinema and think like, oh, the director is so great or like the screenwriter is so great and so on. Um, and so this is a little bit the idea that I had with reification is, is to say that in order for movies to be made the way that we're used to them, uh, to watching them, let's say, as uh, spectators, you have to have an erasure of labor on one hand, but also um, uh, a sense of the commodification of the final product that that has to erase the labor in some ways. Like there's no movie that can show all of the labor that can that goes into it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be really a movie. So it's just about highlighting that dimension of it and, and highlighting also the fact that, that this dimension is not particularly inherent in the making of movies necessarily, right? But that it takes a particular kind of social arrangement for it to happen that way. And an arrangement that I don't think is particularly unique to Egypt, again, you know, this is one of the concepts or ideas that I I think in many ways is similar in different parts of the world, Um, even though the kind of labor that's being erased and the kind of product in the end is different. Ultimately, there will be something erased and there will be a, a certain kind of commodification of the film product at the end. As you say, erasure is an integral part of production. And another, which you also analyze deeply, is a certain kind of uncertainty towards the future, towards what is to come, which you call imponderability. So what, what is this and how does it differ from unexpected futures? So this, again, this is something that I, I kind of tried to develop after I did field work. So this, is, this isn't something I came to the field with, um, but basically, when I came back from Cairo to write my thesis initially, I I thought the word that I was using at the time was just purely uncertainty, right? Like uh, there's a lot of the aspects of film production that are uncertain. Like you don't know what's going to happen. You can't predict what's going to happen. And you're trying to kind of figure out like, how are you going to coordinate a particular shooting day? How is the movie going to look like in the end, like three months from now when you're just sitting there on paper and trying to like scout a few locations or imagine what a character is going to look like or whatever. And so when I use that word, I think a lot of people, anthropologists specifically, were latching onto the word and kind of attaching different aspects to what uncertainty meant that I really didn't think was part of what I had experienced in the film industry. And part of that came, that gave me the idea of doing a bit of more conceptual work to distinguish different types of uh, futures confronted by people. And the the distinction that I made between uncertainty and imponderability, which isn't really a distinction in ordinary English, I think both words are kind of fairly synonymous in in normal English language. But I wanted to use uh, these terms in, in a kind of technical sense to distinguish between futures that are kind of generally unknown and unexpected which is like generally how the future is experienced by a lot of people, right? Like you don't know what's going to happen. You can't really expect what's going to happen. And imponderability, which is a future that is expected, like you have a, a kind of set conventional expectation of what should happen, but you don't know how to get there. And so it's unpredictable. And so that's why I use the word unpredictable and yet expected as a syn- synonym for imponderable as well, in my sense, kind of, because this is really the kind of thing that I'm interested in, in that book, which is 
not really how filmmakers are kind of trying to figure out how they're going to, you know, find their next contract or figure out what's the, you know, political future of Egypt or figure out what's the, you know, all these different things that they can't really know or expect, but figure out how is the film going to look like? So how is the film going to look like is the kind of question where, you know, you clearly don't really know how it's going to look like, but you do have an expectation of what a film is and you do know that you're like getting there somehow. And even in my book, I compare it a bit to like writing a book or writing a thesis or something, right? It's it's quite similar, right? Like in some ways, it's it's not really that you're like completely at a loss to know what's going to happen with a thesis. Like there's, you know, enough examples of theses before and enough people who've written them before you and enough like have a baggage of experience and a division of labor and whatever to, to make you know that there's you know, you have like something to work with, as it were. But at the same time, it's you can't totally predict how the thesis is going to end up while you're writing it, as everyone who has ever written one can tell you. So in, in some ways, I think that that's the kind of thing that I was trying to get at, is how, basically how in complex uh, socio-technical processes, there's particular futures that are very much expected, but no one really knows how to get there. And so the question I was trying to answer is like, how then do people manage to get there you know or or not you know but like how do they try to manage to get there as it were so true and to paraphrase an author that you also cited our work be them movies theses or literal guidance are going to turn out the way they will turn out we just don't know which day-to-day actions or events will take us there for now we move on to the second part of this conversation there is no denying the reach that the egyptian movie industry has in the arab world Yet, as you have experienced, much of the network behind this is made of interpersonal relationships that do not participate, for the most part, in an open labor market, and don't seem to have a large distribution power. I do not think of these ideas as contradictory, but stages at different ends of a process. What is in the middle of this process? Which phenomena, facts, agents, or reasons collect the uneven labor of Egyptian filmmakers and projected far beyond Egypt's borders? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, because as you as you alluded to, and as I kind of came to discover from my experience of do, like working with filmmakers in Egypt, there's it, in many ways, um, a lot of their ways of working are very much oriented to a domestic market, a kind of national Egyptian market. And their ways of thinking of their own practice of making films as opposed to other places, which they're certainly aware of, you know, like, you know, most Egyptian filmmakers they came across had watched, you know, Indian movies, had watched, watch Hollywood all the time, of course, uh, but also watch like uh, East Asian movies, like Korean movies are very popular, uh, or Hong Kong kind of action movies, or, uh, you know, like some even watch European movies. Um, and so, um, you know, while they're aware of all these different uh, cinemas and also these different like ways of making film, a lot of their way of describing what's, you know, specific about what they're making is very much like bearing a kind of Egyptian market in mind. And so the way that like this then, this kind of very uh, closed off, if you will, uh, domestic market um it then creates products that get you know sent all across the Arab world and even beyond, um, is is somewhat of a of a kind of interesting story because it, in in many ways it, it extends that kind of interpersonal logic 
in the sense that the distributors that take Egyptian movies uh, to distribute to different Arab countries specifically, but also a bit beyond like in Turkey and Iran and maybe in, in Western Africa at certain points in time, were actually just businessmen who had direct relations with the producers. And to this day, I mean, you know, like, so if you want to distribute a movie in the Emirates, for example, there's like four guys, four distributors who know like the producers in Cairo. And they're like, okay, what's the new movies that you have? Which, which movies have like X star? And this is what I was saying a bit earlier about the stars being an important currency in the film industry is that a lot of the uh, the way producers sell movies to those foreign distributors is by saying, I have this star with me. And this star kind of guarantees that audiences in other parts of the Arab world are going to watch it. So um, one of the kind of most prominent examples of this is a guy called Haidel Emem, who's a super, he's like a super, super famous Egyptian movie star. Started working in the 60s, actually still alive, still making like a TV series by now. But basically any movie with Haidel Emem, first of all, he was like the highest paid actor. He has been, I think, for the last like 10, 20 years. But also any movie that has just his name on it distributes extremely well all across the Arab world. And whenever he visits other Arab countries, you know, there's like millions coming to like uh, see him, you know, watch him. He's a super big movie star. So in some ways, like a lot of the regional distributors think of the movie as like, you know, a story, a star, and maybe a director if push comes to shove. But it's very much about these kind of personal connections that they have with the producers that then make them take it and, and bring it to other parts of the Arab world. And that I think in a sense explains also why Egyptian movies aren't super well known in other distribution circuits, for example. So like, and I'm not even talking about the international festival circuit as a kind of its own thing. I'm talking about if you show up to a movie theater in, in Paris or London or something, what likelihood do you have to like encounter an Egyptian movie is very, very low. And when you do encounter them, which has happened that Egyptian, like kind of mainstream Egyptian movies have shown in theaters in France specifically, like the Yakubian building, for example, or like Speak to Me, Shahrazad, I think it's called in French, or even Clash recently, which showed at Cannes, a lot of that those connections were also made in a very kind of directly personal way. Like we, we know for sure that the producer knows the distributor <laughs> personally but in some ways, and that's how that movie kind of ended up being in, in France or in London and so on. So I think that interpersonal logic is a lot of what makes the the strength of that industry in some ways that like a lot in the absence of other types of institutions and other, you know, a, a strong kind of set of agents or a kind of very large and international labor market and so on, people are still able to make movies to a very high degree of uh, proficiency. Uh, but at the same time, it's also the weakness of that network in the sense that like, if you don't have a network somewhere, then it's, it's very difficult to bring the movie there as opposed to what Hollywood has, for example, which like, you know, you don't really necessarily have to have an interpersonal relation somewhere to, you know, be able to distribute your movies. Thanks for that. And beyond interpersonal networks, we know that language also is a factor in this uh, process. It is easy to think that languages help the spread of digital me media in the region and limit it beyond that. What do you think of this? Is there something more at play? That's a very good question. I think, well, so... In, in a way, I think um, it would be easy to say the, the language is uh, something that facilitates the spread of Egyptian movies um, across the region because Egyptian is a dialect that is understood by many people across the region. But it's, it's, a, it's too simple because in a sense, the reason part of the reason why Egyptian is so prominent across the region is because it was kind of for a long time diffused across the radio, across television content, across movies and so on. And that's why through exposure, <laughs> a lot of people all over the region ended up understanding the dialect. I mean, there's nothing inherent in the Egyptian dialect that makes it like more understandable in a way. Um, so I, I would say that the, the linguistic question is, is tied to kind of particular 
forms of uh, can can you say like uh, cultural prominence that Egypt has in the region? Others would call it uh, straight up cultural imperialism in some ways, in the sense that Egyptians from the fifties and sixties have been like very big producers of all sorts of media products, not just like films, but also as I said, like the radio is quite important. The um, television content, uh, but also like all sorts of uh, you know books, all sorts of uh, visual arts, and so on. And uh, part of the strategy of the Egyptian state at the time, specifically through the Ministry of Culture, was to spread those products as a way to show that Egypt was the Arab nation, the kind of Ur Arab nation in a way. And so a lot of other parts of the Arab world who had different claims to being Arab in, in other ways didn't necessarily get their products spread as widely just because these networks weren't necessarily in place and they necessarily have the same type of prominence as Egyptian products did. And I think right now the, the the kind of centrality of Egypt as the kind of Arab place of cultural production is is slowly shifting. I mean, in the last 20 years, there's a lot of productions that come from the Levant, specifically from Lebanon and Syria, for example, or uh, from the Gulf that kind of challenge the idea that Egypt is the kind of representative of everything else in the Arab world. Um, the other thing I would want to say about the linguistic question is that it's not necessarily the case always that because you don't know the language, then you won't watch the film. If you think of the prominence of Hindi language, Bollywood movies all across Africa, <laughs> basically, but also all across North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, but also in, in different parts of, uh, of the Gulf and so on. People don't really understand these movies. Like very few people speak Hindi unless you're a migrant from India. But the movies, because of a particular association of visuals and subtitles and kind of, you know, people kind of get what's happening and so on, they they enjoy them a lot as products, not necessarily understanding what the main stories are, because the, the point is not really the story always. Um, and in, in some ways, I think this is how Egyptian movies got to kind of spread a little bit beyond the boundaries of the Arab world specifically. I mean, they're watched, as I said, in, uh, for a long time, they used to be watched at least in Turkey and in Iran, for example, which most people there don't really speak Arabic. And likewise in Western Africa. And I think that has to do with like particular distribution networks and also particular affinities that people have with certain bits of the film, such as, for example, the belly dance sequence, right? That's a, a lot of people will remember Egyptian movies for the belly dance sequence um, outside of the Arab world, even if they don't really understand what, you know, what everything else is about. And I think, I think that's also part of what's interesting to think of when you're thinking in terms of language. And likewise for Hollywood. I mean, a lot of the, the appeal of Hollywood across the world is not because everyone speaks English everywhere, right? It's because of the action, because of the heroes, because of other things. So um, I think, you know, it's important to think about the, the linguistic question re relation to cinema in that connection as well. There's much more to cinema than just the, the story and the language. You have alluded to how the circuit of international film festivals is uncoupled from the standard or commercial distribution channels. One of the important notes of this circuit is actually in Cairo. So I wonder, um, from how far do movies come to Cairo? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, the International Film Festival in Cairo has been going on for almost 50 years now, I think, like 45-ish years. And I think for a long time, I mean, and to, to this day, a lot of filmmakers from parts of uh, Africa, parts of Asia, South America, and Eastern Europe actually find the Cairo F Festival a, a kind of important node in a link of international festivals uh, that, that are linked in, in some ways by inter international organizations like the International Union of, of Film Critics, I think it's called in English. I'm not sure but i mean there's a kind of chapter of this international organization in egypt that does decide which movies are come up and 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 that, that chapter is connected to other ones in the international circuit and so on 
while Cairo is not necessarily a kind of destination for a lot of the kind of prominent Western European and American movies that tend to go to festivals like Cannes or Venice or Berlin, or, you know, th those kind of big name European festivals, the Cairo Festival does attract quite a kind of international group of, of filmmakers and, and a group of filmmakers that's specifically interested in a circuit of uh, film that d doesn't necessarily go through the European one. And, and likewise for Egyptian filmmakers, I mean, for example, for Ahmed Fawzi uh, Saleh, who's the director that made that movie called Poisonous Roses that actually ended up going through quite a bit of the international festival circuit. I mean, the movie opened in, in Rotterdam in, in the Netherlands and the, Ahmed was quite kind of uh, conscious of trying to open in Europe for economic reasons. And I think this is a lot of what filmmakers who are in that circuit try and do, right? Is, is try and go to Europe because that's where a lot of the money is. But at the same time, Ahmed was also very uh, cautious about trying to reach audiences all across the world. Uh, so to try and send the movie. So like the movie went to Brazil, the movie went to to uh, Lagos, the movie uh, went to India, the movie went to, um, I think, some somewhere in, I think, Taiwan, I'm not sure. The idea that he had in mind was he wanted his movie to be seen by as many people as possible and not just by, you know, trying to reach the European audience because this is like the, the end-all be-all of his practice as an artist. I think in practical terms, it's important to go through Europe just because of in that circuit, that's where a lot of the capital um, is, is kept, right? And that's a lot of how you can manage to get some extra money that you can't get from you know either the local distributor uh, producers and distributors or from the kind of local ministries of culture and so on and so forth. But at the same time, it's also... Th that circuit is much bigger than just kind of the few the few festivals that are known um, in Europe. There's a tendency to think that there's a kind of international hierarchy that's the same everywhere, you know, of festivals. But actually, you know, if you talk to filmmakers who are from Iran, even let's say, for a lot of Iranian filmmakers, for example, it's really important for them to come to Cairo because uh, for them it's like similar-ish market, and um, it gives them access to like an audience that, of, of people who are really interested in movies who are also, you know, in a Muslim country and so on. Uh, so, you know, like, yeah, different filmmakers have different senses of the world that they're trying to address um, uh, depending on where they're located. And it's, you know, not always the same world. Thanks, Shab. The last question I'd like to delve into is how concerned are Egyptian filmmakers of the world? And this question is in two parts, which I'm going to ask together because I suspect it might be difficult to separate the answers. First, do the filmmakers operate with an awareness of being in Cairo, in a specific part of the world? And second, does knowing that their movies are consumed in a larger world from Algeria to Syria concern them? Does, does it feed back into their practice? Two very good questions. On the first one of whether filmmakers are trying to like are self-conscious of being in Cairo while making movies, that's definitely a big part of uh, of their practice. Um, especially, I'm talking specifically about the people who are making decisions, so the directors and the cinematographers and so on. For everyone else on the on the set, it's it's kind of it goes without saying that because they're in Cairo and they've lived their whole life in Cairo, that's kind of just part of how they do things. But in terms of like this self-conscious representations on the screen, it comes out in in many different ways. I mean, in some in some movies, and this is also an answer to the second part of your question, which is it really depends on who the filmmaker is and what is their like what kind of audiences they're trying to address and what kind of circuits of uh, circulation of capital and people uh, and goods they're trying to get inserted into. So for the filmmakers who are, tend to be more like 
have a domestic audience in mind, they'll try to insert bits that are recognizable of kind of uh, of youth culture, let's say, or bits of the l- landscape of the city that can be recognized as or coded a particular way in their movies so that like the Egyptian audience will immediately recognize this. But it's the kind of thing that would be lost on someone who even sometimes see people who haven't been living in Cairo specifically as opposed to other Egyptian cities, because a lot of the movies are actually very Cairo-centric and they're happening almost entirely in Cairo and very little in other cities. And then other filmmakers like Ahmad Fawzi Saleh, for example, will think of putting in aspects of the city that aren't usually seen on screen elsewhere in the world. So like the movie we made, Poisonous Roses, is about the tanneries in Cairo where they make uh, leather. Um, And it's a kind of, you know, it's an industrial district, but of course, because you know, labor laws are very flimsy. Uh, people work in very kind of dangerous conditions and also conditions that re- don't really look like an industrial district for someone who's used to like the way it looks like in Europe and so on. And so by filming just like, you know, the everyday life of people there as part of that movie, part of the the idea behind it for Ahmed was to show that in, in a way that hasn't really been shown um, on screens everywhere. And a lot of the comments that, you know, he got on the movie um, over different uh, nodes of the circulation worldwide, but also within Egypt is, oh my God, we've, we never knew that this place was there, <laughs> you know? And I think that this is really kind of the effect he was trying to go for, not, not in terms of trying to represent Egypt to the world um, as if he were like a spokesperson for the nation or something, but more so to kind of show an aspect of the country that hasn't really been represented in that way. Um, and I think a lot of filmmakers who have an international audience in mind try to go for something like this um, in different ways. And in terms of the second part of your question, which is what audiences people hold in mind, as I said, like uh, most, the great majority, I think, of uh, directors and cinematographers and so on have a very Egyptian audience in mind, like someone who a, a lot of, I have a chapter in my book where I talk about imagined audiences. So like how producers imagine the audiences that they're addressing. And a lot of them use these like very local metaphors for like particular social groups that they're trying to go for. One of my favorite ones was a guy once referred to the audience of the movie as um, a, a lady who's taking the skins off of cucumbers while she's watching TV. You know, that's the audience I'm going for. Uh, so it's a kind of very specific, you know, local reference. But others like Ahmad Fauzi, for example, had from the start the idea of addressing audiences worldwide. And there's different strategies of doing this. You know, some some think of it in terms of, as I said, representing the nation in different ways. And then it comes out in a way that's like, it looks like quite... Uh, kind of propagandistic, if that's the right word. Uh, but others try to do it in more subtle ways and, and in different ways, like try and go for something that's quote unquote more universal. And in that case, they try and mimic aesthetics that aren't necessarily universal, but more so like European or more so like um, like particular kind of world cinema classics, like the uh, films of Satya Jitre or Usman Samben or like some people like this. And, and yeah, and I think it really depends on how the filmmakers try to locate themselves and which type of audiences they're trying to attract. But, but definitely, ultimately, all these filmmakers are kind of aware of the existence of these different kind of cinematic traditions and so on. Um, and to what extent it influences their practice is kind of variable, but um, people are very much like in that world as well. <laughs> it's not like purely, you know, we're just doing our own thing. As professional filmmakers, I can imagine that they will be constantly watching everything they can watch. What about us? Do you have any recommendations for any Egyptian movies we can watch on streaming platforms? 
Um, yeah, I think so. Poisonous Roses is available on Netflix normally, which is Ahmed Fawzi Saleh's movie that I, I followed and, and worked on a bit. I think you can watch Clash, uh, Ishtebek, uh, which is by a guy called Mohammed Dieb. And that was shown at the uh, Cannes Film Festival. I'm sure it's on some uh, streaming platform. Um, and then recently on Netflix, uh, they've made available a lot of the movies of, I think, arguably the most famous Egyptian film director ever. It's called Youssef Shaheen. Um, and a lot of his movies are available um, on Netflix now in, in kind of a high resolution. Um, but what I would recommend is also for people to try and, you know, so because Yusuf Shaheen is the kind of, you know, uh, more auteur uh, director uh, type that makes movies very much like the way he he wants to make them. But I would also recommend people try and look for like the kind of light entertainment commercial Egyptian films to see <laughs> how different it is. And, and th- these are the products that are actually more local and that a lot of more people watch in the region. So if you're interested in knowing what it looks like, um, I think it's an, it would be an interesting experience on its own. <laughs> That's a good advice. And it might just happen that people will uh, follow it since the world changes in, in pandemic ways. For example, there is no specific reason why people all across the world should be watching Korean cinema and TV right now. But they are, and not just at your cinema, but as you say, the cinema that Koreans themselves watch in their day-to-day lives. And I'm afraid that is all the time we have for this conversation today. The key takeaway for me is knowing that the life and work of Egyptian filmmakers is not that dissimilar from the life and work of filmmakers anywhere else in the world. And the fact that this is not a fair statement is one of the effects of the displacement of the categories of universality and specificity caused by the hegemony of the Western canon. To hear more stories of South-South globalization, follow us on Twitter at SSG Podcast and join our newsletter following the link in the description. Thank you so much for your time today, Shia. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And to everyone else, see you soon at some other time in some other place.